jump into the epic world of Avatar The Last Airbender with Nickelodeon's official companion podcast, Avatar, Braving the Elements. Hosted by me, Janet Varney. And me, Dante Bosco. Listen to Avatar Braving the Elements wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, one and all, to The Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. Now, folks... There is not a lot of suspense in the primaries this year. But there was big news today from the one voting bloc who could sway the 2024 election, federal judges. Because (laughs) around 10 a.m. this morning, the D.C. appeals court issued a ruling in Trump's January 6th case rejecting Donald Trump's claim of absolute immunity. (laughs) Woo! Woo, baby! Yes! The law applies to everyone. Low is bar. Low is bar. Low is bar. All right. Here's what happened. I was hoping you'd be more of a ruthless mob. Now, here's what happened. Trump's lawyers argued that presidents can get away with any crime they commit in office as long as the Senate does not then impeach them. But the bipartisan three-judge panel smacked that down in a unanimous ruling. Folks, these cowardly judges will not admit who they are. They choose to remain unanimous. (laughs) And in the United States... So it's official. Former presidents are not immune from prosecution. Now, that should be obvious. But it's never actually been tested in court because no former president until Trump has been indicted. (laughs) That is, until they bust Jimmy Carter for his liquor store holdups. Now, the judges quickly pointed out the stupid in Trump's idiocy, saying, it would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. Yes! That's why the Ten Commandments don't read, thou shalt not commit adultery except for Moses, who gets a heavenly hall pass to part that sea, if you know what I'm saying. Now, Trump Trump is out there saying now that he wants to debate Biden immediately, right? He wants to debate Biden now. And yesterday, Biden responded to Trump's debate challenge as he exited a bubble tea shop in Nevada. Donald Trump's ready to debate you right now. Do you accept? Will you debate him? If I were him, I'd want him to debate me, too. We got nothing else to do. Wow. That, I will tell you. You go, Joe. That is actually the most badass you can sound while holding bubble tea. (laughs) There's a reason James Bond's drink order isn't boba, mango, shaken, then poked through the lid with a comically large straw. (laughs) I've never had one of these before. I was not prepared for the choking hazard. (laughs) Now, while in Nevada, Biden also spoke at a union meeting where he reflected on how great his sister Valerie is. My sister's a hell of a lot greater than I am. My sister was three years younger than me. She's now 23 years younger than me. I don't know how the hell that happened. (laughs) However that happened, is there any way we can do that to you, too? Can we get you whatever pills she's on, maybe grind them up and put them in your bubble tea? (laughs) Now... 
<laughs> really, really upsetting. Now, uh, Biden, <coughs> I have found that you should really have the food in rehearsal. If Biden does debate Trump, it's going to be a challenging uh, thing to avoid any big gaffes. Just this past Sunday, during a speech in Las Vegas, Biden said he had a conversation in 2021 with former President Francois Mitterrand. Just one problem. Mitterrand died in 1996. (laughs) Now everyone's saying he meant Macron and saying the wrong name could happen to anyone. You know how it is. You're on a date with someone new. You go back to their place. Things are getting pretty hot and heavy. And then in a moment of passion, you accidentally scream out the name of long-dead French President Francois Mitterrand. (laughs) But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think this may not have been an actual gaffe. I think this could be proof that Joe Biden has the ability to communicate with the dead world leaders. (laughs) He's so old, he straddles the line between this world and the next. That means, follow me, that means Biden can pierce the veil of mortality to assemble the greatest team to tackle any problem. Here's a photo of him discussing climate change with Lincoln, Churchill, Joan of Arc, and Genghis Khan. I'm telling you, it's a feature, not a bug. It's all summed up in his new campaign slogan, Biden 2024, I see dead people. (laughs) Now, how long... what, what, What is this? What is this today? Okay. We are less than a week away from what many have called America's Super Bowl, the Super Bowl. (laughs) And this year, it's going to be real good because it's going to be live right here on CBS. And after the game... (laughs) And after the game, you stay tuned for a special post-game late show. Boom! Right there. Get all the highlights. Get all the highlights and in-depth analysis from me, a guy who spent one day on his high school football team and every other day playing Dungeons and Dragons. I'll have all the latest hit points, the saving throws, the armor classes, and how the game would have been different if the 49ers kicker was a half-elven mage. (laughs) Now, the festivities already kicked off last night at the side of the Super Bowl, Allegiant Stadium down in Vegas, where the NFL held Super Bowl opening night. Are you ready to get ready for some football at a later time? (laughs) Everything was completely over the top. The theme of the night appeared to be doing mushrooms at Carnival with head injury. (laughs) Then it was time for the big moment, the entrance of the Kansas City Chiefs. Presenting the reigning, defending, undisputed Super Bowl champions, the Kansas City I got to say, Coach Andy Reid does not look that happy to be there. (laughs) I told you guys we should have parked closer to the Super Bowl. Come on. Come on, they're saying our name. Come on, that's us, guys. (laughs) Keep up. Let's go. (laughs) Of course, the, the the whole point of this media day is to get up close and personal with the players and get as much information as we can about Taylor Swift. Which Taylor Swift album title resonates with your character or persona most? Uh, Red. Why? Because I get sunburned a lot. Uh, uh, Album title? uh, Speak now, because I am speaking right now. (laughs) 
The media went right to the source, Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey, and asked him about Swift's new album, but he refused to spill the tay tay tt I have heard some of it, yes, and it is unbelievable. I can't wait for uh, her to shake up the world when it finally drops. Oh, I can't give you anything. My, I leave, I leave, I leave that up to her. Okay, he zipped it, he locked it, but he did not put it in his pocket. Media, find that key. It's on the ground someplace around the chair. Even San Francisco's quarterback Brock Purdy was asked whether Swift will affect his performance. If it comes down to it, Brock, and it's late in the fourth quarter, are you prepared to disappoint Taylor Swift? Yes. Of course he's willing to disappoint Taylor Swift. It's one of the best ways to get her to write a song about you. <laughs> It'll show up in her next album, The I Tortured Brock Purdy Department. <laughs> now, uh, here's the thing. A lot of right-wing conspiracy theorists out there believe the Super Bowl is a Taylor Swift, Joe Biden psyop. Now, I thought it was crazy, too, until I saw the CIA's new logo, Central Intelligence Agency... Taylor's version. (laughs) Further stoking the conspiracy theories out there is the fact that while the Taylor Swift's beloved chiefs are preparing at the -the state-of-the-art Las Vegas Raiders practice facility, the 49ers have to use a practice field at UNLV where the NFL put in sod on top of field turf. The 49ers complained, but NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell dismissed the issue, saying, it's a very playable surface. Roger, just because both fields are playable doesn't mean they're equal. Uh, for the lady, we have the chocolate raspberry souffle drizzled in warm salted caramel. And for the gentleman, a lint-covered gummy bear fished out of the busboy's pocket. <laughs> the chef assures us both are very edible. <laughs> we got a great show for you tonight. More Late Show Poncho. After this. Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game. Headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. Now, uh, folks, as you've probably heard, uh, last night we lost one of the greats. Country music legend Toby Keith passed away at the age of 62. Now, I was shocked and saddened when I saw the news this morning. I knew Toby was ill. I mean, he'd been fighting stomach cancer for some time, but I still had hope that we'd see each other again and that we would hear him on the stage because I was lucky enough to become friends with Toby over the years, as improbable as that seems. We met very early on on the Colbert Report, and back then there was a not-so-helpful legend that I had knives out for some of my guests, and it didn't help that at the beginning I sometimes did. And I remember having some kind of plan for Toby, I think related to his booting your ass song, but right before I went on stage, I remember vividly looking down at my shoes and saying, what are you doing? You're a host. He's your guest. Make him feel welcome. See who he is. And what do you know? We hit it off like a house of fire. I couldn't believe how much I enjoyed talking to Toby Keith. And evidently, Toby had a good time, too, because after the show, I was headed to a post-mortem meeting, and he was coming out of his green room, and those rooms were on the same hallway. 
And as he was heading for the door that goes out on 54th Street, he turned and caught my eye and said, Hey, man, you do a great job. Whatever the f it is you do. <laughs> and I took that as the greatest compliment, so much so that my, my then head writer, Allison Silverman, uh, for Christmas, had that stitched on a pillow for me. And... It... It has been in my office ever since. That day, Toby taught me not to prejudge a guest and to have my intention, but to keep my eyes open to the reality of who they are. And for that lesson, and for a lot of other things, I'm always going to be grateful. This is a man who rose from Oklahoma's oil fields, where he worked on a rig, and the state's football fields, where he was a semi-professional defensive end, to become one of the most consistent hit makers in country music for more than three decades. 20 Billboard number one songs. 42 top 10 hits, and rooms full of platinum and gold albums. Toby was a great performer, unapologetically patriotic, opinionated, brash, often controversial, but resonating with legions of fans by writing their lives in a very real and entertaining way. So we had him on a lot. He was always fun. He was in my, my Christmas special back in 2008. Uh, we had him on this show where he gave me that guitar you see right there, which my son now plays, and I hope he'll think of Toby when he does it. One of my greatest honors was when I was asked to induct Toby into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, where I got to sing As Good As I Once Was, a song I used to listen to every night before going on stage. I think he enjoyed how unlikely a pair we seemed. I sure did. You know, like, when, when people are excited when a duck and a horse are friends? <laughs> well, for the record, I was the duck. But Toby was always surprising people. You would think you, you know who Toby Keith was. And then you're watching Obama's Nobel acceptance speech, and there's Toby Keith giving him a standing ovation. Toby, what are you doing this time? Toby taught me not to judge people too quickly. And with his passing, I'm going to try to remember that again. It's something we all need to remember, because I'm sure Toby and I disagreed about many things, as so many Americans do these days. More and more of us are angrier and angrier with each other. But tonight, I will issue this invitation to anybody. I do not care who you are. I will meet you at this place. I will meet you at being brokenhearted that Toby Keith is gone. Thank you, big dog. We'll be right back with Joanne Reed. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. My first guest tonight is a political analyst, author, and host of MSNBC's The Readout. Please welcome back to The Late Show, Joy Ann Reed. Nice to see you again. Wonderful to see you. Now, uh, so here we are in 2024. Yes. 
This is, you're going into your, your second uh, presidential election as the host of the readout. Yes. Um, okay, it looks like, you know, all the safe money is on a Biden-Trump <laughs> rematch here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> besides the deja vu. Yes. What, what, what is that like for you? Because some people aren't sure how to approach this uh, differently this time. What, 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 what is your approach to this election? Anything different than 2020? You know, the difference between that election and this one is that it was um, an up-in-the-air question. It was not an up-in-the-air question, I should say, in the previous election, whether uh, the president of the United States could use SEAL Team 6 to kill his political opponents. So it's a little different now, right? Like, we, it's a different Trump. Well, that was the argument that his lawyers <laughs> made, yeah. that he could do that as long as he different. wasn't impeached then. Yeah. But today we got the good news that at least the uh, Court of Appeal says he, he can't cannot. have his political enemies yeah. killed. Right, and, and I... Th- <laughs> which is a, a relief. Yeah, and I, I think Again, very low bar, very but low a bar. relief. Yes. Very low bar. It's a, it was about a 57-page ruling. It probably could have been one paragraph that just said no, no, and also no. <laughs> you cannot do that. But it, it was longer than that. But I, I think that the material difference is that when Donald Trump first ran for president, mm-hmm. um, he was just the guy from The Apprentice. And he had fooled a lot of people into believing he was this wildly successful businessman yeah. when actually he was a guy who got a W-2 from the same place I do because he worked for NBC, right? He was, a, he was an actor. Yeah. But he had fooled people into thinking somehow he was this masterful, brilliant, genius politician. And he got in that way. And he governed in a way that was so disturbing, including a million people dying from covid that I was confident about how the last election would turn out because people were exhausted by the antics, by the tweets, by the, you know, the sort of misery index of being in Trump's America. You were confident in 2020 oh, quite, how quite it confident. would turn out? Really? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, how do you feel this time? Terrified. <laughs> it's going to be fine. No. <laughs> Good. I, okay, I feel better now. As we speak, as, as we speak, because yeah. we're recording this around 625. Yeah. As we speak, the House is voting on impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary uh, Mayorkas. Yeah. Um, f- first of all, I've, I've read the articles about this. I can't quite, e- even if I try to approach it objectively, I <laughs> yeah. can't quite figure out what the like the high crime or the misdemeanor is here. Yeah. He may be incompetent. I don't know. I've never yeah. run Homeland Security. Sure. But from what you understand, what are the charges here? The charges uh, are that they couldn't get Joe Biden. Oh, no, so they're... <laughs> <laughs> He's the replacement candidate. The revenge impeachment exactly. attempt at Joe Biden yes. is not going very well. Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, because I'm, I'm like you, I'm trying to look into what it is that he must have done, it's that they couldn't get Joe Biden because they couldn't prove that Joe Biden was running Hunter Biden's businesses, but they promised Donald Trump that he wouldn't be the only impeached guy. So they're like, there has to be a different impeached guy that's with Biden. So they're like, we'll just pick a different guy because Hunter and his dad weren't in business. So okay. Mayorkas is just next up to bat. So this will ensure that Trump can beat Mayorkas for president. Or maybe he and Hunter. I'm really not sure, honestly. Okay. So what what do you make of the escalation of the GOP's uh, uh, revenge against America tour (laughs) for not reelecting Donald Trump? Because this was a a border deal that's been killed now. This Mayorkas thing is part of the border crisis. And there is a problem with the border. It has been for over a generation. But... The Republicans had have this plan. The other plan was to force the Democrats to come to the table mm-hmm. with some pretty tough measures on the border yeah. in exchange for Ukraine funding and that sort of sure. thing. 
What do you make of the fact that the Republicans got what they wanted but had to kill it anyway? They got everything they wanted. There are no progressives supporting this bill. It's a bill that the Border Patrol Union supports, that endorsed Donald Trump. It's a bill that the United States Chamber of Commerce supports. The Wall Street Journal, the Rupert Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal supports this. It is a very conservative bill that has nothing for dreamers, nothing on immigration reform. It's all enforcement. It's what they've been, it's what they've been asking for since President Obama was in office. Mm-hmm. He's essentially said, okay, you can have all of it. And they've said, no, because Donald Trump wants to run on a border that's on fire. And so, sorry, you're on fire, but I can't put you out because the wrong fireman would get the credit. Did you ever think it was going to pass? Because I've been doing this long enough that I remember when Marco Rubio helped, uh, he he, he worked on a bipartisan bill that was actually... With Don McCain. That helped, uh, well, it was going to be a comprehensive immigration yeah. reform and then had to run away from it and basically strangle his own baby in the crib yeah. and, and say that he rejected that bill with yeah. no rationale. Well, the rationale was he went on Rush Limbaugh's show, the late Rush Limbaugh, and Rush Limbaugh yelled and screamed about the bill, and suddenly he wasn't for the bill. So Rush Limbaugh was the previous Donald Trump. And now they're saying they don't want to pass the bill because Donald Trump told them you cannot. So they're just doing what he says. And I still have yet to understand his power. Where was the hope that it would ever pass? Because if if you could do something like this, wouldn't you have done it before? Exactly. And also, when Donald Trump was president, and during the time when Republicans held the House and the Senate, they didn't do any of the things in this bill. So if this was the most important thing to do to secure the border, why didn't they do it when he was president? I don't know. (laughs) We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more. Joanne Reed, everybody. Stick around. Now you can feel like you're in the audience at the Ed Sullivan Theater with official Late Show with Stephen Colbert merchandise at ParamountShop.com. Shop t-shirts, mugs, accessories, and more, and Late Show Poncho listeners can take 20% off with code TLS20. That's 20% off at checkout on all Late Show products with code TLS20 at ParamountShop.com. Hey, everybody, we're back here with the author of Medgar and Murley, Joy Ann Reed. For those in the audience who may not be familiar, who were Medgar and Murley? Well, Medgar Evers was the first field secretary hired by the NAACP. And that job really meant that you would investigate crimes that took place against black people in the state where you were working, and you would sign people up for memberships in the NAACP, uh, and you would attempt to register people to vote. But he was doing that job in the most difficult state to do it in the United States. Mississippi was the state with the most lynchings. It was the state with the most barbarism and crime against black people. It was literally the most dangerous place to be black in America. Mississippi. Absolutely. Exactly. And he was a World War II veteran. He'd gone at 18 years uh, of age. Um, He had he had fought uh, on Normandy Beach. He had been in the Red Ball Express, which was this segregated unit that were the Transportation Corps. So he'd been to Europe. He'd seen some of the world and he came back saying, I'm not going to fight fascism in Europe and then come home to fascism in Mississippi. So he decided, you know, the first thing that he did was he was wearing his uniform. He got back to Decatur, Georgia, and he was told to go to the back of the bus and he refused. And he was beaten. And he said he took the beating of his life, but he was a different man. 
And Merle Evers was uh, a 17-year-old from Vicksburg, Mississippi, who met Medgar the very first day that she was at Alcorn College. And her grandmother and her aunt, who's also named Merle, who had raised her, had said, there are three kinds of men you need to stay away from in college, my dear. Upperclassmen, football players, and veterans. And Medgar was all three. And she fell madly in love with him. (laughs) Well, you say that you know that Medgar Evers is often left off of lists of the most significant civil rights leaders. Yeah. Why do you imagine that is? I think partly, and I've been thinking about this a lot, because, you know, James Baldwin, who I consider the greatest writer in American history, he named three people he said were the great triumvirate of civil rights. Martin Luther King Jr., obviously, Malcolm X, and Medgar. And he knew and met all three. He rode with Medgar into the Delta to do this incredibly dangerous job. I mean, Medgar would do things like dress up in field hand uniform clothes and pretend to be a field hand to be able to talk to these terrified people who could be lynched for looking at a white person in a way that they didn't like, right? And he was he investigated the Emmett Till case and got that to trial. It's, he's the only reason it went to trial. He was fighting for a civil rights bill. But he did all of this and died in 1963, a year that was so momentous in civil rights, including the assassination of the president of the United States, the March on Washington, the four little girls bombing. His legacy gets overwhelmed and sort of run over by all of these events, mm-hmm. many of which he had a hand in. Well, you, well not the, the, the assassination. I understand, I understand but, this. Was, exactly, you know what I mean. I understand what you mean. <laughs> Well, uh, Merle is still with us. She's 90 yes. years old. 90 years young and y- 90 years fabulous. Uh, I understand <laughs> you, you got to know her for, uh, in I, creating I this I did. Book. You know. What is her, what's it like to spend time with her and what, what is, how does she now feel about our country? Yeah, it, you know, what was amazing is I first met uh, Miss Murley um, in 2018. And this is what really caused me to want to write the book. I met her in California. I had met, I had interviewed her before, you know, but not in person. And when I first met her, she started talking about Medgar. And she sounded like a, like a little schoolgirl that was in love with her beau. And I was like, Miss Murley, he's been dead for over 60 years. And she just said... Medgar Evers was the love of my life. That's her voice. It's fabulous. Mm. And I said, Miss Murley, this is such an amazing story. This is a love story. And it struck me that in order to do this work, this incredibly dangerous, deadly work, these men were not marble statues. They were human beings who had love lives and romance and fell in love with a girl and had all of the things. You know, he was the fun dad on the block. They used to throw the football with all the kids. You know, he was the one who would take them all, throw them in his car and take them all to the drive-in, the segregated drive-in, but to try to give these his children, but also all the kids on the block, a life. And that took a lot of love for his family, for his people, for his community, really for his state. And I wanted to tell a story of that, all of that broader love. You know, when he was assassinated, I spoke to the sweet kids, um, they're now adults, who live down the street. And most of the people that I interviewed on the block, they still live there, Um, the real friends of the Evers. And they said when they assassinated him, they assassinated this block. He was all of our, you know, he was our kid's dad's friend. You know, he was part of our community. And all of the kids there were forever traumatized. His kids were forever traumatized. And to kill a man in his own driveway in front of his children, you had to have such deep hate. I wanted to write about the deep love on the other side of that coin. Well, we have to go here in just a second, but I'm curious, I'm curious what you learned in your research for this book that is applicable to our country and the divisions that we have today? I would say what I learned was about courage. And I think that is the other theme in this book. 
you think about today people who are afraid to stand up to a former reality TV show star president because of a tweet. And yes, indeed, people do face death threats if you speak against him. But a lot of the people who are facing those death threats can afford 24-hour security because they're wealthy people. This was a man who had no money. He wasn't even making enough money to sometimes afford his insurance premiums, and he was a former insurance salesman. You know, these are people who went into the battle for civil rights with no resources, with no support. And so I think about today the political courage of people who I deeply disagree with. Your Toby Keith segment really moves me because this is the thing. I disagree with Adam Kinzinger. I disagree with Liz Cheney vehemently on their politics. But that's political courage, to stand up to your party, to stand up for your country. The Tennessee Three, these 20-something-year-old state senators and Miss Gloria Johnson, their 60-something-year-old friend who came together and said, we're going to stand up to the Speaker of the Tennessee House. Those small acts of courage are what can save our democracy. And to have courage, you have to love something, right? If you love... You, you, you love your kids, right? If there's a, a fire in your home, you're going to run in to save your kids because you love them. And in order to really have courage, you have to access that love. And so I think that's what I learned, is that there was so much courage back then. And the people today, we have so much more, so many more resources. We need to have a little courage to save this democracy. Thank you, Joy. Medgar and Murley is available now. Joy and Reed, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Just one more thing. If you want to see more of me, come to The Late Show YouTube channel for more clips and exclusives.